0: So let's go to Romans chapter 5. We're going to read verses 1 through 11, but we'll focus on 9 through 11 this morning. So Romans 5, starting in verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Now hope does not put us to shame, because the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, although for a good person perhaps one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while you and I were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, since we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. And more than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray as we begin this morning. What an amazing text that we just read, Lord. What unbelievable truth that not only have we been made right with you through the death and resurrection of your Son, but through reconciliation we're brought into a relationship with you as well. Lord, I pray that this morning, as your word is spoken and as it's heard, it would have its intended effect in our congregation. For those, Lord, who do not know themselves found in you, those who do not know the sweet benefits of being justified by faith, I pray that this word would rest heavy on them. That they would see what it means to be united to Christ and be drawn to that through the work of your Holy Spirit. And for those who are your children, Lord, who know the sweetness of being reconciled to you, let this be, like verse 11 says, a time of rejoicing in God. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen the weak. I pray that you would build up those who are discouraged. I pray that those who are ill would feel your healing hand. I pray that those who are weary would be strengthened through the gospel. And for hundreds of other things that we don't know about, Lord, Meet those needs, we pray, in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. So in verse 1, if you remember back four weeks ago, Paul said that we have been justified by faith. We just read that at the beginning of the chapter. Now here in verse 9, he says that we've been justified by his blood. And rather than thinking that Paul forgot what he said ten verses earlier and is just kind of making things up again, I think it's good for us to take a look at the rest of, at least the chapters surrounding chapter 5, to see that Paul speaks about the means of our justification in several different ways. Right here in chapter 5, we see that it's both by faith in verse 1 and by blood in verse 9. In chapter 3, verse 24, justification is by God's grace. In chapter 4, verse 25, it's through the resurrection. And in ch- uh, chapter 5, verse 10, we're going to see that we are justified. By his life. And while these are all different ways of speaking about the means by which we are justified, we need to remember that it is the same reality that Paul is speaking about here. In fact, I think that in verse 9, when he says, therefore, having been justified by his blood, Paul emphasizes blood here to show the atoning sacrificial aspect of Jesus' death, because he's going to speak about the wrath of God and being saved from that. And we know from the rest of Scripture, that the only way to be saved from the wrath of God is by the Son of God and His sacrifice for sinners. So after reinforcing what Paul has already said earlier in the chapter about justification, he uses um, what in Hebrew literature is called the argument from the greater to the lesser. Right, when he says much more, and we see this here a couple times in this passage, he says, Since we have been justified, much more shall we be saved by his life. When he says that, he's saying that God has done the hard work. He has already done what was necessary to purchase our salvation in the death of his son. And if he has done that, will he not do the lesser thing in bringing us safe to the end? Now this is not to say that things are easier or harder for God as they are for us. Right, If I were to say there's a huge rock out in the parking lot, I need you to go lift it, you'd be like, that's hard, I can't do that. If I say there's a tiny rock in here, you'd say, well, that's easier, I can, I can manage that. That's not what Paul is meaning. That's not what the argument from greater to lesser means. This is to be seen from our perspective in seeing that the sacrifice of Jesus was the greatest act of love and mercy that God could have given to sinful people. And if he has done that for you, then there should be no doubt in our mind that he will do everything necessary to bring you safe through the final judgment into glory with him. Jesus used this phrase in the Gospels. Uh, in Matthew 7, 9, he, uses this, he says, "If If you, if your son asks for bread, which one of you will give him a stone? Or if your son asks you for a fish, which one of you is going to hand him a snake? And then he says, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts, how much more will your Father give you good things? If we, who are not good, know how to be kind and benevolent, how much more would God, who is pure goodness, know how to give good gifts? Or Hebrews chapter 9. The writer says this in verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself as without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works? So what he's saying is that for a time, this was the acceptable sacrifice. Bulls, goats, doves, pigeons, goats, all that kind of stuff, Old Testament. So if that was sufficient at the time, according to what God had laid out, how much more would the Son of God's sacrifice be sufficient for the forgiveness of sins? So both of these passages are saying that if we understand how this reality works, how much more should we understand how this reality works? An argument from the greater The lesser, and we're going to see this again when we get to verse 10. And here, when Paul says that we have been saved, we should see this in the context of verse 9. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God? This is a future salvation. This is one of the things that we need to realize when we read the Bible that as believers in Christ, we have been saved, justified, and we will be saved. In the future, this is a reality that we need to get right, or a category of thinking that we need in our minds. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. And and none of that is meant to cause you to doubt what the end is going to be for you. When we say that you are going to be saved, someone can say, "Well, aren't aren't I saved right now? I mean, I've confessed Christ, I've been redeemed." Yes, and amen to that. You are saved, and you will be saved. And what Paul means by saved is that when the wrath of God is poured out in final judgment on the world, and you stand before God, the thing that will shield you from God's wrath is not what you have done, but it's the work of Christ and the righteousness that was given to you when you were converted. And so when Paul says, shall be saved, he's talking future tense. Paul continues then on with his theme and his argument now in verse 10. But we get something a little bit different. So previously, the death of Jesus resulted in justification. And we saw the benefits of that as we worked through verses 1 through 9. The legal verdict of being pronounced that we are no longer condemned under our sin, but have received the righteousness of Jesus that will allow us to not only live in this life, but pass through judgment at the end. That's justification. But now we see that the death of Jesus also results in reconciliation. Reconciliation which is a big word for saying made right or brought into relationship with. The language moves from legal language to personal language. And while the reality of justification is, of course, a beautiful and precious reality to the Christian, Paul wants to make sure that we don't remain in the realm of legal terminology, cold, verdict. This is the way it is. Now, we're thankful that's the way it is, but there's more than that. Not only being cleared of your sin, forgiven, condemnation removed, more than that, we can have relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And aren't you glad this morning that we did not remain in that position prior to being saved? Those who were formerly enemies of God have been justified, but more than that, they've been reconciled to God. So the hostility that was against them, and this is not just... Our hostility against God. Often we think of this hostility as, well, my disposition towards God. This was God's hostility towards you in your sin. God is angry with sin and does not tolerate it. But because of the sacrifice of Jesus, that anger has been removed through Christ. And now, having been reconciled, we can have personal relationship with Him And I'm so thankful for that because if you think about the unlimited power of God, you think about His holiness, His hatred of sin, and think of all of that perfect wrath being focused on you, no one would stand. No one. I don't care how good of a life you think you've led. So thanks be to God that through Christ there is a shield to protect us from the wrath of God. God sent His Son to pay the penalty, so not only can we have our sin forgiven, but now, right now, this morning, you can experience the reconciliation of the relationship that was broken. And I just think if we, if we didn't have this reconciliation, if we only experienced justification but nothing else, our sin would be forgiven, but we would miss out on that beautiful aspect of having a relationship with God. I told you guys last week I was reading this book by Andrew Murray. I ran across this quote this week and it fit right here and so I want to share it with you. Murray says, As long as the Christian only thinks of the righteousness of Jesus and being counted judiciously righteous for his sake, the absolute necessity of abiding in him or having union with him will not be apparent. But as the glory of God and his righteousness unfold into his view, he sees that abiding in him personally is the only way to stand at all times complete and accepted before God. We were enemies, but we were reconciled to God. In other words, brought into relationship with God through the death of Jesus. And Paul again points to the timing of this reconciliation. We talked about this timing a fair amount last week, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it this morning. But Paul points out that when we were enemies, in other words, outside of us, before we were looking for any kind of solution, before we were drawn to Christ, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. You see that in verse 10. For if we were, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Paul again uses this argument from the greater to the lesser. If God reconciled us to himself while we were enemies, will he forsake us now that we've been brought near and brought into relationship with him? No, of course not. If he pursued you while you were warring against him, while you were ignoring him, not giving him any time of your thoughts or your actions, how much more will he show love now that you are restored to him? We illustrate it this way. Let's say that you have a really good friend that you work with. I've had the chance to work with a good friend before for several years and it was great. But let's say you and your friend are working together and this coworker comes over and he's just an absolute stinker. He has been the worst to work with, obstinate, argumentative, accusing you of things just as bad as you can imagine. Now this guy comes up and he says, oh, man, you got to help me. I, I'm in so much trouble. I don't know what to do. I really need your help. And out of, you know, compassion and kind of overlooking the past experience, you help him. You get him out of the bind. I'll say two weeks later, your good friend who you work with is in some of the same situation. And he comes to you and asks you the same thing. Man, I'm really in trouble. I really need your help. What should he expect to hear from you at that point? If you showed compassion to the person you really can't even stand, and you were willing to help them, shouldn't your friend who you love and who you've had relationship with, shouldn't you expect that you would get a good answer and a positive? Of course I'll help you. That's what Paul's saying here in this text. This is the argument he's using, that if God has done the unbelievable work of removing our sin and removing our condemnation, how much more will he provide eternal security to those who love him and again, Paul uses this in the context in verse 10 of future salvation. He says that because God has done the greatest thing while we were enemies, he will certainly do the lesser thing and bring us through judgment. Think about what this should do in terms of our assurance for those of us who know Jesus. Have you ever wondered if you'll make it to heaven? Have you ever had times of doubt, maybe in your lowest points, and you wonder, man, is this real? Is, is this, am I really going to be carried through to the end? You should read this text and hear Paul say, doubt no more. Doubt no more. God has done everything necessary, everything, to remove our condemnation and the death of his son. And now we can know with confidence that if he did that, he'll bring us through to this future salvation. Or Paul would say it like this in Romans chapter 8, in verse 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He called. Those whom He called, He justified. And those whom He justified by faith in His Son, He Glorified. it's as good as done in the mind of God. So what are you going to say to your doubt? What are you going to say to your fears? When that doubt creeps in and tempts you to question the promise of God, you look doubt in the face and along with Paul you say, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us everything? That's what you say. You get in the face of doubt and you say, no, I belong to Jesus. And because Jesus sacrificed himself 2,000 years ago for your sin, you have no doubt that God will do everything necessary to bring you to glory. Or with Romans 5, you can say, for if... While we were enemies, God reconciled us to himself through the death of his son. Much more will we be saved by his life. God's desire for your life is not that you would stumble through weak and questioning at every turn and doubting his goodness. His desire is that you know his love for you and you see it poured out in the sacrifice of his son. That's one of the reasons we do communion every week. We need the constant reminder of the goodness of God in the death and resurrection of his son. Albert Midlane was a hymn writer in the 18th century, and he wrote this. "'Tis in the cross of Christ we see how God can save, yet righteous be. "'Tis in the cross of Christ we traced his righteousness and wondrous grace. The sinner who believes is free. He says, the Savior died for me." he points to the atoning blood and says, that made my peace with God. Every one of us who knows the sacrifice of Jesus has repented of your sin and turned to him can say with confidence, the blood of Jesus covers me. The blood covers me. And finally in verse 11, Paul says, more than that, as if there could be something greater than everything he's just said. (laughs) More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. More than knowing the benefits of justification. More than living in this present reality of being reconciled. And more than having the hope to get us through suffering. All the things that we've seen in chapter 5 we are to rejoice in God. All of this knowledge, all the things we've seen, everything that we've talked about in these first 11 verses is meant to produce in us an attitude of joy and thanksgiving to God. Joy in the Christian life is not circumstantial. It should not depend on if you had a bad day or not, if you decide to be joyful. There's a difference in joy and happiness. Happiness is very circumstantial. (laughs) I'm happy because I had bacon this morning, or I'm happy because whatever, fill in the blank. Joy is an appropriate response in your life to knowing what Christ has done for you. And as a final reminder, Paul says that we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Having this relationship with God, having this intimate fellowship is not something you have to wait for until you've been kind of proven yourself and been a Christian for a while. This is a now reality. We have now received reconciliation. And because of what Christ did, we can experience this today in the present through His Spirit. So as we wrap the series up today, we're finishing Romans 5, 1 through 11. I want to go back and just quickly review the things that we've covered.